Aya Tim here with a message before the podcast. Due to rights reasons, the songs have been shortened for this podcast. Every song is taken from Texas's White and Blonde. All tracks are written by Charlene Spiteri and Johnny McElhone, unless otherwise stated. Put Your Arms Around Me was written by Johnny McElhone, Charlene Spiteri, Dave Stewart and Robert Hodgins. Black Eyed Boy by Charlene Spiteri, Johnny McElhone, Eddie Campbell, Richard Hind and Robert Hodgins. And Charlene Spiteri, Johnny McElhone, Mark Ray and Steve Christian wrote Good Advice. White on Blonde was released on 3rd of February 1997 on Mercury. Now, enjoy the podcast. Tim's listening party was a lockdown sensation. Unfortunately, it was on Twitter, which you can't listen to. But Absolute Radio has the solution. Tim Burgess explores seminal albums alongside the artists who brought them to life. Absolute Radio presents Tim's listening party with Tim Burgess. Hiya, and welcome to another episode of Tim's Listening Party on Absolute Radio. I'm Tim Burgess, and I'm excited to be sitting down with another musician to play back a classic album together. If you've missed any episodes of the show, The Bangles, Fall Out Boy, The Kinks, U2 and Skunk and Nancy, catch up by searching for Tim's Listening Party wherever you get your podcasts. I love hearing from you, so get involved on Twitter by tweeting at Tim underscore Burgess and at Absolute Radio, using the hashtag Tim's Twitter Listening Party. This episode I'm joined by the guitarist, singer and songwriter in the band Texas. Since their debut album in 1989, they've sold over 40 million records worldwide with 13 top 10 singles and 8 top 10 albums in the UK. Their fourth album, 1997's White on Blonde, topped the UK chart and has been certified six times platinum. The very best of, 1989 to 2023, released in June, highlights a band with so many classics and an upcoming slot on the pyramid stage at Glastonbury shows that over 35 years since they started, Texas continues to draw huge crowds on the biggest stages. It's Charlene Spiteri. It's funny, like, you're going to sit talk about music and talk about making records and talk about, you know, being in a band and all those things. You know, if you talked about any of that when you were just, like, at school, because every look at the little freaky geek. Yeah. And then suddenly we're, we're relatively we're relatively all right now and it's okay for us to talk about it. Exactly. exactly. I mean, I was uh, reading that you had a quote that said, not doing too bad from a hairdresser from Glasgow or and uh, yeah. um, I mean I feel like I'm not doing too bad for a labourer from Northwich you know um, <laughs> and, uh, someone who works know, in a chemical funny. factory it was funny it was Peter Kay that said it to me years ago he says the thing is you just saying that you know as a labourer there's that little bit of you that still has that 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 is kind of what you do and he said it's like he says he says you know that's I guess a part of why a certain amount of success comes to you because in the back of your head you're still that hairdresser you're still that labourer so you understand what it is to literally push forward and want to like succeed at something that is basically a dream yeah exactly I started off as a cleaner and I was happy because I'd just like listen, have my headphones on all day and I'd just be like cleaning floors. And then I was like a bricklayer's, wow. bricklayer's mate and a, you know, fitter's assistant or whatever. And then I managed to work, managed to get into an office and I was licking envelopes and but all the time with headphones on. So I, I, <laughs> I, I, was, I was still dreaming then, kind of. Exactly. I mean, that was how I ended up working in the hairdressers because I'd gone to Glasgow School of Art and I needed to like 
earn a bit of money and I, and I started off as a, as a Saturday junior and it was that thing I was like oh my god they're playing really good music in here and they had this Pagliacci um, statue bust statue in the window and I thought I knew there was only like three of them in the world I thought how did they get that in Glasgow <laughs> and and it was that and the music was great and I remember like just making we used to make up loads of mixtapes and everything to take into the salon it's weird because it's always been about music since since I was a little kid but I never really ever imagined that yeah, we'd that we'd make our own music. Yeah, it seemed like it seemed like people in London did that or in America did that. It wasn't really like from Glasgow. Yeah, I mean, unless you were in Simple Minds. <laughs> do, do you think it was harder, um, you know, coming from Scotland? It never seemed harder in the sense that it wasn't possible to do it because you were from Glasgow. But at the point where we got signed, mm-hmm. there was that attention towards Scottish bands. Right. So then it was an advantage because you had like, right. it's like anything, like the whole Manchester scene yeah. and everybody yeah. was doing going for the Scouts and stuff. It's like there's periods where record companies and A&R men at that point are literally scouting the country for bands. Um, so we had that thing that we were probably a little bit exotic. Yeah. But then, you know, there's that point where you know you're not living in London or you're not there or you're not in the record company all the time where it was kind of like oh, who who are they again yeah, and it yeah, became yeah. a slight disadvantage yeah. um, so you did have that moment of sometimes it was an advantage sometimes it was a disadvantage you know, especially when we were actually making White on Blonde before that point I don't think that you know after the first album was really successful in the UK then sort of there was the whole Manchester scene thing was happening after yeah. that and we were like just not relevant and most of our record company never even knew who we were they thought we were an American band right. and they were like oh yeah this band Texas that are signed to the label I mean who are they and we just kind of disappeared and went okay we're just going to kind of prove them wrong and just try and make a record that doesn't just sound like an old Texas record Literally, when we put out Say What You Want from that record, I mean, people didn't even know it was us. They were like, oh, who are these new people? It's funny because we still have people that come to Texas gigs that think that White on Blonde was our first record. Yeah, yeah. Um, that yeah. That's at the point where our career starts. But that's reinvention um, for you, though, isn't it, previous. as well? That's reinvention for yeah. you as well, because you have to reinvent Absolutely. every time, you know. I mean, it's really good for you as a, as a songwriter and a musician as well to literally go away I mean it was funny because we'd been in recording and Al Green song Tired had been alone previous to White on Blonde Craig Armstrong who was one of the original members of Texas played keyboards before we'd put out Southside Craig had left Craig had been off doing all his orchestrating and stuff and he'd been working with Nellie Hooper Oh, and yeah, um, yeah. he was in the studio with us and he basically came in and went, oh, I'm working with Nelly and was like, do we do this, we do that? We were like, oh, what, what do you use? And we literally wrote down what they used to make the records. So then we bought samplers and, you know, we were like, right, got logic and everything. Yeah. And so when we were making White on Blonde, we were literally sitting with like a shopping list of things that we needed to get <laughs> and then a manual to learn how to make it because we were we were in one of the rooms in, in my house in Glasgow and we just turned we turned it into a studio and I had the whole cupboard as my singing booth and and that was how that was how we made that record like when we were actually making the record the whole writing of it beforehand was we'd been writing as well in and out of that and I had been living in Paris for a bit as well and Johnny and I would leave messages for each other on an answer machine. That was how Say What You Want and stuff like that started. Well, I mean, Say What You Want, I think everyone would agree with me when that came out, when the world heard that for the first time, I think everyone was blown away. Oh, thanks. And the, now I'm like that, oh God, I feel like I'm blushing. Can you tell me about 
the process, say what you want, being the first track. It is the first track, right? I know there's a little thing yeah, before. Yeah, first track in the album. Yeah. You know what it's like, you listen to a lot of music. We always loved TLC's Creep and we loved the snare sound on that. And we were literally, well, how do we make these sounds? Because we'd had the hit with Tired of Being Alone, the mm. Al Green song. Yeah. And I'd suddenly was singing in this falsetto. And yeah. We wanted to really try and create something that because when I did that, people kind of went, oh, that that's a bit different. And yeah, wow, yeah. you sing this kind of soul thing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. we thought Texas was kind of like this rock yeah. kind of country slide guitar thing. So what's that all about? And it's like, well, this is the kind of music that, that we really, really love. And when we were making White and Blonde, we thought we just wanted to make a record, an album that was just all our favourite kind of music. Like everything that we loved, Northern Soul, you know, soul music, trip hop, all that stuff. You know, there was like, there was such a massive mix of music that we were listening to, like we were listening to like Massive Attack and Tricky and everything. And yeah. we just try to mix up all these sort of influences within the record. And, you know, with Al Green and TLC and all yeah. these records yeah. that we knew so well, that was it. So basically, Say What You Want came from Craig with his stuff, Work Manelli. You know, we bought the computers and everything and, and we'd never made a record in that way. We yeah. didn't go into a studio. And then it was at the point where we had done that and then the Boiler House boys did a mix of it. They simplified the bass line on it. But they had, it was just one note went through the whole song. And we thought, Brilliant. okay, simplifying the bass line actually works really, really good, but we don't love the one note going through it. So basically what we did is we went back to Glasgow, took what they had did, and then reworked that. So what we did was we used the bass line, the simplified bass line, but we did it with all the notes. And that was basically it. It's just that whole Al Green thing, which was the descending piano line, but it was the diddly, 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 diddly. Yeah. And that yeah. was how we how we wrote it. Here's the first song from White and Blonde, the classic, Say What You Want. Charlene, can you tell me about how it came about with you and the Wu-Tang Clan? Did you go to Staten Island? It's the weirdest story ever <laughs> how we ended up working with the Wu-Tang. Okay. Basically, our manager, Rab, was in New York and had a meeting with their merchandising people, Tom Bennett, and basically RZA and Power and his cousin, who looks after him, came into the, the offices yeah. and they got talking about G-Wagons. This is the weirdest thing because we had, I mean, it was it was way back in 97. Yeah. <laughs> and Say so had come out and I think Rab had done like a G-Wagon t-shirt or something and they went, oh, G-Wagons did it. And we all had like brought five G-Wagons over, driven them <laughs> over from Germany because we all wanted G-Wagons. <laughs> they got talking about cars and all the rest of it. And um, they said, oh, what do you do? And he says, oh, I'll look after a band called Texas. And Rizzo was like, oh, yeah, that's the, that's the girl with the, the all in blue and the... And it was that thing. And he came on the phone that night. He says, oh, I met the Wu-Tang Clan. And we were like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Wow. Like, do they want to do something? And we basically said, you know, ask ask if they would be up for doing something. And that was literally how it happened. And Reza, he knew Glasgow. 
He'd played Barrowlands. Wow. And yeah, he'd played Barrowlands years before and had gone over to the pub and um, across the road for wow. the Barrowlands and wow, stuff. Wow, you used wow. to imagine him in there. And he really felt this the connection, connection yeah. with Glasgow and just a sort of like working class and quite a musical city. And, and he really felt like this whole connection between Staten Island and, and Glasgow as a city he said totally up for it and I didn't know there was a phone call coming but I get a phone call from ODB that <laughs> night and I was living in Islington and um, in a little basement flat and I got this phone call and it was like yo 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 what's up cupcake and I was like who the hell's this on my phone he's like yo it's ODB and I thought it was a wind up and I'm like yeah whatever f- yeah, put yeah, the phone yeah. down yeah, yeah, yeah. and then I got a phone call back and it's like this isn't a wind up you know and I was like alright and he's like are we going to do this record my oh mind at this point is going I can't believe this and he's like yeah I'm down with that whole sound and the the way you're singing the voice the sweet sound and all this and I was like okay great so we arranged to go to New York and then on the night we arrived you know the Wu-Tang tunnel out 20 hours later <laughs> yeah. whatever it's like are they coming um, and was it a studio? Started, were you actually sitting in a studio? Yeah, yeah um, okay. we were literally, we were in the one where Tupac got shot the first time. Right. It was Quad Studios. We were in the studio in New York. It was all of the Wu-Tang turned up. Sons of Man turned up. Wow. The lot, I mean, it was wow. literally, they were just like kept coming. Wow. But ODB had been arrested that day. So, couldn't so they were it. like, okay, ODB's been arrested, so he's not doing it. <laughs> but Method Man's going to do it. Johnny and I actually didn't know this story till about just before COVID because we did like a documentary thing with RZA and RZA told the story that when when Method Man wrote the rap he was like yeah Scottish people they're they're all pirates they're pirates (laughs) so he wrote this whole I mean I always wondered when he's going the beginning of the rap stars yo ho ho and a bottle of rum and I was thinking whatever he's happy singing yo ho a bottle of rum then knock yourself out and um, you know Staten Island with the challenge and all this thing but he talks about pirates because he thought Scottish people were pirates because I think he'd seen whiskey galore or something. <laughs> and he was like, ships come up onto the rocks and they all like they, they take stuff off ships. And I was like, oh my God. So that's what he based his whole rap on was Scottish people being pirates. I love it. That night, it was just such a laugh making the record. And I mean, we actually get chucked out the studio because the engineer said that Rizzo wanted a drum machine and he says put that on my bill and then he said we tried to steal it and then we had guns and we were all snorting angel dust and it was a whole load of stuff we shot the the, we shot the face cover when we were doing it there was like a whole load of stuff and they were all going on about all this stuff um, it was absolutely the right time to be doing say that, what you want it? by I mean, Texas you know, because they, it really I mean, was was, it, was that in between them doing forever I mean you know Built for Keeping mm. Links had just come out I suppose and, and uh, may, yeah. maybe a Ghostface record but it was yeah, I mean exactly I, I, I would I would buy one of their albums a week pretty much <laughs> you know at that time I mean just that was what as well what the weird connection is is because of the whole Al Green thing yeah, that was yeah, yeah, the yeah, connection as well because they were you Sample. know they were, yeah. They were sampling, yeah. you know, Al Green and all the stuff with high records. So yeah. we were literally like, it just felt like the perfect match for us. It was funny because Riz and I spoke about it and, and Riz says, you know, you guys took such a big chance. And I'm literally like looking at him going, are you stoned right now? <laughs> it was like, you guys took the chance because, you know, we were like this pop band from Scotland. And because I remember when we put it out, people were like, how come Texas get to work with the Wu-Tang Clan? You know, there were some people like quite about it 
especially when then Method Man comes and does the Brit Awards with us. Yeah, yeah. Which hit a whole different level because yeah. I remember getting called in at this Brits meeting and they said, okay, we're famous for our collaborations. And I was like, yep, okay. And they said, how do you feel about singing a jet with Smokey Robinson? And I did that thing where I went, <gasps> Smokey Robinson. And then I went, <sighs> because I had been home two days from making this record with the Wu-Tang yeah, Clan, so no yeah. one had even, even knew that we'd made it yet. Yeah. And I thought, I don't believe these words are going to come out my mouth. But then I said, mm, it's a bit predictable. How about we get you the Wu-Tang Clan? Um, we've just made a record with them and they were a bit like, ooh, ooh, I don't know about, ooh, Wu-Tang people? I don't know if we can have the Wu-Tang people. Yeah. I mean, literally on the night of the Brits, they had put Method Man in like another floor from everybody else. You know, they normally have those cabins downstairs. Uh-huh. They'd put him somewhere else. And we basically said, if you don't get him downstairs beside us within the next 10 minutes, we're literally not doing the show. Yeah, yeah. And they were like, oh, and then Method Man comes, you know, John John comes down and he's meeting the Spice Girls and they come in and they're like, can you introduce us to Method Man? And he was in his element, he's like standing there with the Spice Girls going, apparently all the time are laughing because when he went back to New York, he was literally like, I met this person and I met that person. We just had the best night and I just remember walking out onto that stage. It seemed to be over in seconds and everybody was just like, whoa. And that, that's when the record hit. So yeah, it was yeah. weird because then some some people thought that it was a Brits thing that had happened uh-huh. and then became a record. And it yeah. was like, it was actually the record. And then we gave it to the Brits. Just all about taking the chances, right? Yeah. I mean, it is. You know yourself. It's like whenever we've been asked to do something and like, especially when it's collaboration, mm-hmm. sometimes you hear something, you just think that just won't work. It's a bit predictable. It's even like when I made the record with Ramstein, people were like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to make a record with <laughs> Yeah. That sounds like... Because you know you're never going to make that music. So it's like, I know I'm never going to make the, the records that the Wu-Tang make, and I know I'm never going to... You know, it's like, so to fuse it together, suddenly you think, well, maybe we'll find something that's new and fresh. Yeah, yeah. The next track from White and Blonde. This is Drawing Crazy Patterns. Crazy Patterns on Tim's Listening Party. Beautiful yep. song. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Drawing Crazy Patterns and Breathless were actually the, probably, I think, were the last two songs that we wrote for White on Blonde. So it's funny that it's... And Breathless is the last track on the album, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah. it's funny that this is so far up and uh-huh. Breathless is last. Yeah. But it's a bit trying to create light and shade within a record, you know, it's like... And it was always, for me, it was like raindrops and tiptoeing round each other because you know when I talk about drawing crazy patterns it's almost like that when you're trying to tell somebody something and you're almost like you can't quite make eye contact with them because it hurts so much and you're kind of looking at your feet and sort of shuffling around and that was always what drawing crazy patterns was it was just that moment of like trying to work out what's coming out your mouth and how not to hurt someone and how not to devastate someone by saying that this isn't what you want in your life. And ironically, that's coming after saying, say what you want. So you're kind of like going, I'm going to say what I want, but then you're doing that thing of like, I'm going to say what I want, but I'm going to try and tell someone 
really gently without yeah. devastation. There's lots of um, records. Was it Norwegian Wood? John Lennon was trying to talk about something without somebody else knowing or something. So there's lots of ways of writing songs uh, and you're disguising exactly. something. Or, yeah, I think well, when you're younger as well that you do try and disguise what you're yeah, saying. I exactly, mean, I, yeah, exactly. It's weird, you know, now at 56 years old when I'm writing, I think I'm more like I'm just spewing out what, uh, exactly how I feel. Whereas then I would be trying to hold a little bit of me back and, yeah, yeah. and hide. You know, Johnny and I would be like, you know, you don't want to give too much away about yeah. yourself yeah. and you don't want to personalise the song that much. Yeah. So it is strange what you write about and, and how you write and changes throughout the years as you get older as well. Yeah, it's almost like there's a mask before the person. Or, you exactly. Know, yeah, um, it's like that guitar in front of you. Yeah. Like, there's, <laughs> that's the barrier between you and me. Yeah. Like, don't come too close, you know. I was convinced that uh, Drawing Crazy Patterns was a single. I mean, I know there's about seven or eight songs on this album <laughs> that are singles. And I was like, well, this is definitely a single. This is definitely a single. But I, I, I realised that it wasn't. No, but, it uh, wasn't. It should have been. I mean, it's funny just even thinking that, because I think we did five, I think it was five singles came off the White on Blonde album, yeah. which were all number one airplay hits as well, <laughs> which I was like, I mean, that's that's rare. I'm it's, like, take me back to that time. Please, can we have like every like one our number one airplay hit? I mean, I think that time, I mean, I think we were kind of around at the same, well, we were around at the same time. We were. It was the exact and, same and time, like, yeah. And I remember like, you know, V Festival, time of TFI Friday. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and we both like, you know, did really well out of those two things. Yeah. We really did, because, I mean, and Chris Evans was such a force yeah. with TFI, and obviously at that point he was, like, radio too, because, funnily enough, that when Say What You Want came out, he played it twice back-to-back on radio. That's and, um John Kennedy, who was originally our lawyer, who then went to work for Universal, yeah. was in his car going to the record company, and Chris Evans said on radio, he played it twice and then he said, listen, just tried to buy this record and there's none in the shop, can't get it. <laughs> and um, John Kennedy was like, what? Made a call yeah. and suddenly they restocked all the record shops. And it's funny because when White on Blonde came out, they predicted that we would sell 100,000 albums and we sold 100,000 albums on our first day. And you know that thing with record companies where you're just like, eh, 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 eh. Here's track number four on White and Blonde, Halo. We Texas with Halo on Tim's listening party. So, I mean, you've touched on it before, um, Halo. Halo, I think I've told this story once, I guess probably because I never really ever wanted to tell it and and then it just came out one time. But the story behind Halo was um, I had been dating Jake Dillon and we were when we were making Rick's Road out in LA, we started dating each other and we were together for a good bit and then... We ended up splitting up, just, you know. And uh-huh. he wrote a song to me called She Has a Halo. And he uh-huh. me off so much uh-huh. because it was one of those weird ones where he wanted me to come out on tour and I was just going out on tour with Texas and I was a bit like, I'm going out on tour with my own band. And he was a yeah. bit like, 
yeah, but I'm a guy, and I was a bit like, so what? Uh-huh. I, you know, and it was weird because yeah, I was a bit like, my band are more successful than your band. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was one of those ones. And he was like, well, I really need you here. And I was like, well, I really need to go on tour because guess what? I have a job as well. Yeah, good answer. And um, and I just went off on tour, and that was when we split up. And he wrote a song called "She Has a Halo," and I thought, do you know what? This is how you write a song. So, Halo is the answer to "She Has a Halo." That is so that's why amazing. I talk about Bright Light City, you're her religion superstars in their own private movie, play just like children. That's where it all starts. So that was the, that's the whole background to Halo. And we went and made that record and we did it in France and Domfront with Mike Hedges. Yeah. And um also in Abbey Road. And Mike had been an engineer in Abbey Road and you know, had all the old desk originally from Abbey Road I like in his Mike. place in France. Um so we went there and, and Johnny had Knowing Mike, because Johnny was in Altered Images before Altered Images and then Hipsway. But Johnny's connection with the Banshees, with Susie and the Banshees, because Mike had produced a lot of the Banshees records, so he knew his work via the Banshees. You're a big big Susie and the Banshees fan. I am a massive Banshees fan. And I'm a big Cure fan, and uh, he worked on The Cure as well, yeah. Yeah, he did work on The Cure, and I love The Cure as well. You know, they're just such good records. I mean, these are timeless, and, you know, still now you put them on and they sound absolutely brilliant. I can never imagine uh, Robert Smith walking in and saying, I've got this song, I think it's a single, Um, it's called (laughs) Love Cats. And uh, and uh, and just sort of like imagining what people would have thought at the time, you know, it's like I it know. still sounds crazy now. I mean, crazy good. It is, and the thing is, is you know that you've got that that amazing riff. You got the doodle at that point where you can sing the song and you can hum the parts in yeah, it and yeah. and do the dance, think, do the dance as well. Exactly, you know? do the whole thing, like and then, you know all the bits. I mean, I think that's when. A great record has yeah. all those elements. Yeah. It has all those bits. You know, like when when you first hear a record and you can't remember what it's called, and you walk into a record shop yeah, and you start yeah, humming yeah. it yeah, to yeah, the guy yeah, behind yeah, the yeah, desk. Exactly. You, and you they know, know that and record know. that goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and they know instantly what record you're talking about. <laughs> it's just that it's just that madness. But yeah, I mean, obviously we love records. Time for another song. This is "Put Your Arms Around Me" on Absolute Radio. You the fifth track from white and blonde put your arms around me and that was a single right that was a single. Um, yeah. It's funny because we've never been a big ballad band, surprisingly enough. I mean, we do kind of do them occasionally, yeah. but they're, they're never they're never very successful for us, funnily enough. <laughs> I, I don't know why. It's like one of those weird ones. But um, we went off to south of France to work with Dave Stewart oh, yeah. on this. And um, so we made this record with Dave Stewart. And Johnny knew Dave through... Hipsway because Hipsway opened up for Eurythmics yeah. and funnily enough there's a really weird thing is that when Johnny was on that Eurythmics tour with Hipsway, that was how Texas was formed because Annie Lennox got a chest infection in Amsterdam and they cancelled a couple of the dates and Hipsway were I think they were going through a bit of a rocky yeah. point and um, Johnny flew back to Glasgow to meet me wow. and I was still a hairdresser at that point and <laughs> 
this friend of ours, we had a mutual friend, and I never knew Johnny or Jerry, Johnny's brother, who was managing. And um, somebody knew me through some of the guys I shared a flat with that played football with, and they were like, oh, yeah, Charlene sings. And I was a bit like, yeah, I was. it was the week before my 18th birthday, and I went to meet Johnny. Johnny was so quiet at that point. He was literally like a little mouse, and I was like this kind of... <laughs> precocious 17 year old that was a bit like working in a hairdresser so was used to talking I mean I think I basically just talked the hind legs off him and did his nutting and he said to me do you write and I was like yeah 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 I'd never written a song in my life I was like and we wrote I don't want a lover that was the the rest was history so yeah the Dave Stewart thing was was funny. When we were making Put Your Arms Around Me, I remember when we were recording it and we were doing the outros on it and Dave said to me, oh, you know that when Dusty Springfield used to make a record, she would sometimes record literally word for word. And I was like, what? And he says, well, when Annie would do an outro, um, she would literally, she'd write the outro, outro out. Whereas whenever I was doing an outro, I used to just like do a bit, five takes of me doing different outros and yeah, then yeah. you know put it together so then that was kind of like the first time we had really done a worked out okay it needs to go up here it needs to go down there we'll take this bit quiet we'll make this bit loud and it was a different way of, of working and, and that, that was via put your arms around me when that happened and, and I discovered suddenly controlling the actual outro to tell another story Insane, the next track. That yes. came out with the new version of Say What You Want as a yes. single, right? Yeah, um, double A side. This was more like at that point where we had kind of got quite good with the computer and with the samplers and all the kind of stuff. And yeah. at that point, Massive Attack, Tricky was like, we'd love the Tricky record. And we were like, let's really push the boat out and try and do something that, that we wouldn't normally do, like really put ourselves out of a comfort zone. And it was that whole playing around with the sound, distorting things and moving things around and just trying, again, as well with that whole cinematic sound, with that trip-hop really, really fitted so well into that whole soundtrack movie feeling. And um, I think at that point we had done that and that kind of linked into making things a lot easier to then work with people like Rain Christian and stuff like that because we were doing that kind of thing. I guess there was some, some records like before, you know, that, that kind of like led us into a, a world where sort of indie music or Americana or whatever could be mixed yeah. up with soul music and, and dance yeah. music. And I, I know, that, I mean, my band were doing stuff where the Chemical Brothers were producing and, and things yeah. like that. And it, it was something that we all knew, you know, it's, you know, Dave Haslam at the Hacienda was playing like Metronics followed by, exactly. followed by the Smiths, you know, and it's stuff like that. So we'd all known it, but it, it was time for us to do it again, I think. Yeah. I think that's the thing as well as I think like as, as songwriters and musicians what it is is like you know where you initially start isn't where you end up initially that might not be the kind of music that you set out to make of course but the thing is it's like a jukebox it's like you know you're working on something and you maybe don't know that that's where you're going to go but then suddenly you'll reference something that's just like oh we could take it down that route or we could take it that way or this way and there's loads of records just going round in your of head course, because you, because you hear them as references it's like you know anybody that's saying they're not listening to anything when they're writing a record is talking absolute rubbish because in your head it's a memory of the way something sounds or, or, or a feeling that you got from that record that then yeah. influences something that you then make yeah. as musicians we know all these different records and we know all these different 
sounds. It's just at the point where we reference them and where they suddenly come into our psyche. Exactly. I mean, I, I did go to a couple of northern soul clubs in, in Stoke-on-Trent when I was like 17 or 18. And I was going to the Hacienda when I was, you know, about that age too. And, you know, and I remember yep. Kate, Kate Bush from 1978 watching her on top of the pops and the Beach Boys when I yeah. was, you know, when I was living in LA or whatever. And it all just comes at a time that you least expect it in a lot of ways. But Exactly. It's like you just don't know when it's going, when it's going to sort of rear its head. And, yeah, and suddenly, exactly. like, I would say you know in the, in the last album especially there was a lot of that kind of going more down the sort of like disco route of, right. of northern soul going into yeah. that that kind of period and, and yeah. that kind of came out more and and donna summer like using the whole sort of like yeah. the donna summer thing and, and sampling it so there was always all those records because you know donna summer when i was growing up was absolutely massive and it's like abba you know, yeah, you don't yeah. realise that ABBA has suddenly sunk into your mind and your unconscious sort of writing and suddenly things you're like, oh yeah, that sounds a bit like that or it's a bit like that. And then people point out things that you never even thought of when you were writing the record. Yeah. You know, there's somebody who says, oh, it sounds a bit like that and you're a bit like, I've never heard that before, but yeah, I guess it does. You know, it's weird. Okay, let's hear Insane. Insane on Tim's listening party. We were talking about taking chances and stuff. Mm. So when you when you did the track with Ramstein and you did the track with Wu Tang, I mean, is there always somebody in the background saying, "Oh, you should hold on to this for a, a minute"? You and Johnny are thinking, um, "No, we're going to do it right now. We're going to do it right now. Let's not hold on to anything. There's no strategy. We're just going to." completely just go with it right now I mean there was no strategy I mean the only strategy in the writing and in the making of the record was is that we're going to put everything that we love every favourite influence and in, in record that we love on this record Yeah. but funnily Universal when we went in and we'd already delivered Say What You Want and Halo to them Yeah. they said there's no hits on this record and we were like we were, I mean, we were, we were pretty devastated. I bet. And they said, we're going to send you to Los Angeles to work with some um, songwriters. And we were like, oh, try anything, whatever. So yeah. Johnny and I got on a plane, went to Los Angeles, and we went in with these two really big songwriters. They'd worked to Madonna and everything. We were in with them. And we were a bit like, okay, right, we're just we're going to give it a shot. Their whole setup it was like the exact same as us. And we were a bit like, this is nothing new and nothing different. Yeah. We started, we're like, okay, we've got some ideas. And they says, well, we've actually got this song. We gave it a couple hours and then they're like, we've got this song for you that we think you should do. It's called The Itch. And I, I read him, Johnny and I sort of looked at I could see Johnny glaring across me. Johnny's literally <laughs> giving me the eye of like, we're going, we're going. Yeah. And I'm thinking, and I'm doing that thing where I'm kind of slightly trying to keep the peace. And so Johnny goes, we're going to go and get a sandwich. And we went to get a sandwich and we never went back. <laughs> We didn't. We didn't go back to the studio. We just disappeared. I mean, Jesus. I mean, we were so bold, but we thought we were really angry, yeah. and we thought, I can't believe they've sent us here to do this. It's costing load of money, money that you know, like we could be doing so much more with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we went to see our friend Paul Fox and his wife Franny Gold, who is a songwriter. And Franny wrote, like you know, on the night shift, Hey Marvin, 
That one. Yeah, yeah. He was a friend of mine. <laughs> She's written loads of stuff, and Paul had produced Rick's Road with us. Right. And we went to see them because we were so down. And we played Say What You Want and Halo to them. And we were like, oh, we've, we've done this, and these guys wanted to write. And I'll never forget, Paul Fox was like, those are big hit records, what he's doing here. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we were like, we were like, oh God. And it was great because he really gave us that boost, like, actually, what you do is really good. Yeah, he's a yeah. fine. I mean, you'll have spent half your life in here, but we went down to Tower Records in, in LA. <laughs> like, every, like, you know, it's like, do you remember you used to go into Tower Records and you see every yeah. British band in the planet would be in Tower Records and buying yeah. loads of records because yeah, they had yeah, everything. Yeah. And, and they were and in the hotel up the road as well, uh, at the higher. Exactly. Probably. And yeah. so you would just end up back at a hotel playing loads of music. <laughs> and, and we literally bought a load of Northern Soul um, yeah. compilations. Went back to the hotel and we started writing Black Eyed Boy. And that was how that came. And then we went, we went back to Glasgow and finished it with Bobby Bluebell and, and Eddie Campbell, who plays keyboards in the band, and, and yeah. Rick, um, our drummer at the time, um, Richard Hind. And we, we finished off Black Eyed Boy in Glasgow. But that was one of those typical things where there is no rhyme or reason to what we're doing, but actually we were way more organised than we thought we were. Yeah, You know, you don't, as I said, we don't have like a master plan, but actually... I guess we did have a direction of what, what we were going to do. I'm glad you didn't do The Itch. I'm so glad. <laughs> Could you imagine as a woman doing a song called The Itch? Really seriously? Like, like what were they thinking? It's like, guys, come on. Yeah. Nowadays you'd be cancelled for, for that. It's like... <laughs> giving a woman a song called The Itch. Hmm, wonder where we're going with that. Um... But it was one of those ones where we had started writing it in Los Angeles after our trip to Tower Records, where Northern Soul Records, yeah. and um, we kind of really wanted to make a classic, like a real classic Northern Soul record. And um, we came back to Glasgow and we actually finished the writing with Bobby Bluebell from yes, the Bluebells. Yes, of course, yeah. And Eddie Campbell, our keyboard player, and Richard Hind, our drummer, and we, we finished the record off there and did that. And Johnny had been reading these loads of Motown books, how they made the records and stuff like that, and that was at the point where we had discovered the chain on the snare drum and like running the drumstick oh, nice. down, the, nice. down the chain and then the slap, so you get the... <laughs> All that sound, and we did that on Black Eyed Boy. And I remember Irene Arman, Alan Pell, coming in when we were recording it, and he was the one who was like between the first chorus and the second verse. He'd suggested he didn't say in that place, but he had said, you know, do like a hey hey hey, like. And we thought that was where he meant, and we put it in there, the hey, 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 and, and that was that was it. And he was like, oh, actually, it worked perfectly in there, but that wasn't what I was talking about, but never mind. Yeah. Yeah. I remember singing the vocals for that, and I was in the whole cupboard, and I was like, okay, I'm going to sing it like Diana Ross. So, so when I sang it, I was really trying to like tighten my voice down. So I do that whole sort of Diana Ross thing when I go, no, I don't like him. like really hold my voice back do you know yeah, what I mean yeah, yeah, so yeah. I was trying to sing like back in my ears and doing that really enunciated like nyik, nyik sound on the back of my vocal um, so we were trying to really get that whole Diana Ross sound vocally as well on that it's a beautiful thing hey. 
Cat Boy. Moving on to track number eight on the album, Polo Mint City. It's a short yeah. one. It's a really short one, it's but it's, a it's very such, short a, one. such a great one, though. You know, we used to listen to mixes, so we'd get in Johnny's car and we would put a rough mix down, we would get in the car to listen to it, and we used to just go for a drive. We'd end up driving round, like, East Cobride, and East Cobride has apparently got the most roundabouts of one place in the world, right, okay. and its and its nickname is Polamint City. Oh, so that was where Bride. that because we would be like we would be like round and round in Polamint City when we'd be listening to mixes, and that was what inspired Polamint City. That was how we ended up writing Polamint City. There were so many songs written for White on Blonde. I mean, even some of the the stuff that we never yeah, used yeah. on White on Blonde ended up on the last record, on the High record. Um, Mr Hayes was a song that wasn't finished, yeah. but we had written that for White on Blonde. So then when we were making the high record we found these old songs and Mr Hayes we took it and we started working on it and that was when we we ended up putting the Love's Unkind thing onto it with the Georgia Moroda thing and we kind of like went oh that works we had a song called Title Fight that came out on the B-side of How High and people were saying that should have been should have been on the album it should have been on the album Title Fight why is it not on the album and it's because we hadn't finished it at the time of the album (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it came, it, came, it came out next it came out next which yeah. was the b-side yeah, of like, how high <laughs> we're like we didn't finish it to put it plainly well polo mint city sounds to me like something like cripple creek ferry or something like that so like oh wow it's, it's not one of the big ones but it's and it's sure it's, but, it's but it's set, not it does... it's no less significant you know you know yeah. what I mean? it's, it's really really sweet oh, i mean it is it's like i think because it is quite kind of trancy as well you can yeah, it's yeah. like polo mint city really sucks you in a bit it's a bit yeah. like because you suddenly start going it's a bit like being hypnotized it's a bit like yeah. you start going and funnily you're talking about circles because yeah. that's what you're talking about because that was what it was but it has that real effect of that whole thing City. Uh, White on Blonde is next, so it's the title track, and you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing with White on Blonde is that was the whole sort of French thing because basically Texas's big market is France. Right. Like that is our biggest market, so wow. that's where we're most successful. Was this something from that happened early on? From the very beginning, eighty nine. Basically, we in eighty nine we went over to France with Southside and. The fact that in those years where we weren't successful in the UK before White on Blonde, yeah. we would have probably not still been signed if we hadn't sold so many records in France and Spain. We were selling That's loads great. of records in Europe, selling nothing in the UK. You know, mm-hmm. we were just not successful here. And basically, the, I mean, that was probably why we were still in a deal. That allowed us the freedom and the opportunity to come back and make White on Blonde. Wow. What do you think about calling albums after tracks or... Did you come up with the album title and then decide to write the track? We'd written White on Blonde and then we thought, actually, that kind of sums up what the album is because White on Blonde and about what it was trying to say was something really old but something really new. So it was kind of like Blonde on Blonde, uh-huh. the White Album. 
Yeah. And you're kind of going like that. But then it was all about this sort of like way that everybody was living at that moment in time where everything was kind of going quite Scandi and like stripping everything back uh-huh. and that simplifying life. And it was almost like we'd simplified the band. It was about stripping everything back and stripping everything down and kind of being honest with ourselves about this is actually all the music that we love and we don't feel that we need to fit into what people think Texas are we actually need to change everybody's mindset because we don't really have rules on what Texas should be we're just like we're just a band and we can play any kind of music that we want to play so it was about sort of changing people's perception of who we were and what we were it was something old but something new at the same time and we kind of thought that White on Blonde exactly said that. You have to represent what you are at the time that you're writing the record, don't you? And Yeah, and ob- exactly. And ob- but obviously you're still the same person as you yeah. were when you were like 19 years old. So Exactly. Okay, this is the title track of the album on Tim's Listening Party. title track from White and Blonde. So Charlene. Postcard. Believe it or not, this was our 70s glam moment. We were like, let's really f- the sound up and distort everything and those like do that kind of like guitar riff. This was our nod to glam rock. Brilliant. It's that weird thing when you, you know, sit and talk on this record through with you and I'm going like, we've got Northern Soul, we've got Al Green, we've got bit of rock, we've got a bit of blues, we've got a bit of Diana Ross, we've got a bit of this glam rock, we've got ego, it doesn't work, it can't work, and then you go, well it does, it's weird, a bit of trip hop, you know, like they can't all work in one place, and it's like, well they can, because it's, as you said earlier on, it's our interpretation of that, yeah. which is never going to sound like the actual thing anyway, but it's just our interpretation of it. I mean, I like a bit of glam rock in uh, in everything I do. I can I can tell. <laughs> I've seen that through the years. I know. You're listening to Tim's Listening Party and this song's called Postcard. I'll send you a postcard from heaven's Do we include 028? Yeah, I think they're important to say because, you know, at the beginning of the album you've got 034 and then you get 028 and maybe people thought we'd grown out of our whole film thing, our whole soundtrack thing. You know, thinking that maybe just after doing the whole Southside Texas thing with Paris, Texas being such an influence, that maybe we had grown out of that. But that at the point was, you know, we were loving like all the French films like you know, like Betty Blue and everything, yeah, and it yeah, was yeah, that, yeah. you know, uh, like yeah, all that yeah. sound and the vocals and playing with just sonics to make this, you no know, and everything like that, just like that whole kind of thing of 
just making it a moment within film. It's almost it gives it a breath before the next song. So it's so like then, European cinema inspired. Yeah, um, exactly. You're just having that whole little European moment of like, yeah. let's just have a little sip of a coffee, chill yeah. for a second, and now we're back. It was just doing that. Ticket to Lie. Ticket to Lie was probably the most modern take on old Texas. You know, it was just like, okay, then we're just going to do a Texas song here. We're kind of feeling that there should be like a bog standard Texas song, but give it a bit of a more of a modern take. And that was at that point where where we did that. It was kind of like, you know, that whole live band in a room do that. So there was a bit of that within the record as well. And I mean, I don't know why we particularly felt the need to do it, but we did. We kind of thought, oh, let's just set it up. Because we set it up in the hall in, in Newlands in, in, in Glasgow. I mean, it was so funny. Like, we just always gathered at my house and to make this record. There was just always cables running over the bloody house. There was nice. cables running everywhere. It was always really, really good because it had, like, those big high ceilings in Glasgow so it wasn't too tall and it wasn't yeah. too splashy. You know that thing when you're walking around the house going, <laughs> yeah. like this? You you know that one. We'll do it here. You know, like placing people around the room. Yeah. You say it sounds so mad and stupid. Like you know, if anybody watched any of us, they would just think, Christ Almighty, this lot are mental. It was a great revelation to us um, when we were doing the only one I know, and our guitarist just pulled up the carpet, and there was a stone floor, and it's just like the drums just like went from a normal kit to a kind of like. Just that's great, what the, is that what the sound gar- is? Yeah, the a great garage oh, sound, my and, God. and it was just like. There you go. It's like, that's the difference. And it's just like, you know, we became like a... It's mad. Really you know, it is mad. It's just like those little bits of fairy dust that suddenly makes a record come alive where suddenly everybody in the band's going to list each other. Yep. <laughs> now, we're, now we're on it. It's it's weird. I remember years ago when we were doing Rick's Road and Sister Rose Stone was doing backing vocals on it. It was one of those moments where Paul Fox phoned up he says, oh, I'll get Sister Rose. We're like, the Sister Rose Stone? Like, Sly and the Family Stone Rose yeah, Stone? Yeah, yeah. And he was like, yeah, she just, she lives near here. We'll get in to do some backing vocals. Wow. And she told us that when they were doing Family Affair, Sly had spent three days getting a snare sound, right? He was obsessed with drums. And she says, and everybody was just like, oh, come on. And she'd been sleeping on the couch. And he went, right, Rose, go out and do the vocal. And as she went to do the vocals, as the track was running, she went, she started yawning, she went, she went, it's a family affair. And her hands are cupped round her mouth. And he went, do the whole vocal like that. And that's how she sings it, where her hands cupped round her mouth. And that's what the sound is on Family Affair. You know, I'm never walking around a room to try and try and find the, the right echo for the hand claps or anything like that. I'll leave that to other people. But um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that for one second. I reckon you're like me. It's like you're not looking for it, but you know when you don't like it. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. At that so, base, like you're going, that's... like you're going. No, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, I'm. I'm definitely good at that. I'm definitely good at that. You need to have that in a band. You've got to have the person that walks away sometimes and then comes back and goes, oh, I don't like that. And then you then you have a big, massive fight as a band. Yeah. Like, everyone starts arguing. And you're like, right, that's it. And then yeah. you get back in and, and you've got all this, like, pent-up anger and attitude. and Suddenly re- the record comes alive. 
and you've got the single. <laughs> exactly. Tell me where you want to go. Take a breath when I ask you to just try. Close your eyes, I'll take you there. I could take you anywhere. Come fly. Yeah, tell me what you want to do. And I can make it up to you. That was Texas with Ticket to Lie on Absolute Radio. Tim Burgess here having a listening party with Charlene Spiteri about the Texas album White on Blonde. Good advice. The second to the last track. We did this record with Ray and Christian, the the Grand Central boys in Manchester. And it was great because what Ray and Christian were doing as well, they were still doing that whole soul thing, but they were doing it in a really different way. I had done some vocals on a Grand Central record with them as well, and then they did this for us with good advice they were just brilliant to work with they worked in a very different way to how we worked which again you know it's like sometimes when you're working with different people you're a bit like a peacock you're a bit like let me show you my feathers I mean it was just brilliant I mean we just had such a laugh I mean every time I hear good advice I think of one thing I think of Mark Ray literally telling me the story about going to see Rush during the 2112 record. He was a massive what a Rush record. fan. Which, what a record. What a record, but, you know, finding a guitar in a waterfall, I mean, still it blows my mind every time I, like, think about it. Let's talk about concept record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But basically, Mark Reed, he was underage to go to the gig. He was still quite small at that point, and he borrowed his dad's cowboy boots and stuffed them with socks. <laughs> Every time I hear good advice, and I think it's, I just think I'm Mark Ray in a pair of cowboy boots, which I don't know why, but it's almost like he's walking in in a cowboy movie, some Wild West movie, in a pair of cowboy boots. He says he could hardly walk in them, but he was like tiptoeing, like so he was just a bit taller. Not that, that that's really got anything to do with making the record, but it was. <laughs> No, but it, it, it was it, a part. Let's hear it. Good advice on Tim's listening party. Texas with good advice, the penultimate track from their fourth album, White and Blonde. Breathless. So, uh, I have a thing about last tracks on the album. Was this always going to be the last track? Did it just like make itself um, known or did it have a vibe? Normally what we do is everybody goes away and writes a track list and so all the members of the band will go away and write a track list for the album and then it's like we compare notes and see how close they are. Yeah, good. And everybody ended on Breathless. Sometimes it's a wee bit like run around, you do a few wee shifties and yeah. sort of like like do what, what, what do you think it was about that then? That, that, that everyone... I don't know, I don't know. It was very Motown inspired and I don't know whether it's, we just kind of all thought it was exactly the right message to end the record on. It felt completely right for the record. It's just that gut feeling. I mean, I don't know how when you're tracking your records that... Basically, I always do that thing where I like sing the end of the what the song before and see how yeah. easily I can go into the next song. I just do that one wee bit and I go, and it works. It's just like that. That's how I do it. I mean, I don't know how the other members of the band do it, but you know, Johnny and I are always like, right, what have you got on your list? And it's like, it's run that way. 
funnily enough, Johnny and I are always unbelievably close in our track listing. Yeah, wow. I mean, we don't agree in everything by far. I mean, sometimes no. some of the blazing battles that the two of us have, we just wind each other up no end. But when it comes to like decisions on certain things, that we are pretty much parallel in them. And it's weird because in my head, it still feels like the beginning. Yeah. I mean, physically, you can see it's not the beginning, but uh, I'm probably even more excited about it now than I've ever been because, you know, I know how hard it is. For me, like when Johnny and I formed Texas, I mean, I remember it was like, you know, are we going to be a band or is it going to be me? as a so? And, and I was like, yeah. no, I want to be in a band because yeah. everything yeah. was about a band for me. And as well as being in a band as a woman, I kind of felt protected within a band. I felt that it wasn't all about me. I felt like it was a gang and it was never about being famous or being... When I say that, I don't mean that I'd never ever wanted people to be like, oh my God, these are some of the best songs I've ever heard. Yeah. And that they outlived us, you know, because that's always something that I hope for and, that, you know, I still hope for that that would be the case. The moment when you stand on a stage and there's that feeling that you, you know so well is that that exchange between you and the audience, when you, then you become the gang, the whole yeah. audience and the band yeah. becomes the band you're creating this unbelievable moment you try to describe it to people what it's like to just be able to be in amongst that it's like crowd surfing with god (laughs) it's like yes you know some people might think that when you're on that stage that you feel like the most important person you know you don't feel like the most important person you just feel so much part of something that is bigger than anything that you've ever known completely i just love those moments i feel so lucky that i still have the opportunity to do that suddenly you think oh my god we make music that's what we do for a living and you just suddenly remember you go oh that's right not everybody does this that's that's true not I mean, many of us that get the I mean, opportunity forget, to make yeah, records. Yeah, yeah, it's true. We forget what it is we do and we go, Jesus, we make music. That is what we do. Yeah. It's mad. It's mad. mad. Let's hear the final track on White and Blonde, Breathless. I've never felt so much to blame. Breathless, the final track from White on Blonde. Charlene, before I let you go, I have to ask you about your new song, After All. I thought that was wonderful. Can you tell me a, bit, a little bit about that? It's kind of like Back to the Meat and Potatoes of Texas. It sounds like classic classic guy. Texas, doesn't it? You know, yeah, it just sounds like a classic. There's no like bells and whistles on it. It's just like, this is a song, I'm singing it, this is it. And, and it was kind of good to strip that back and do something in that sense, especially since, you know, the album that's coming out is the very best of from yeah. 89 to 2023. And we've put these two new songs wow. on it. We've done this, um, which is the first single, and then we've done a Spooner Oldham song, which is a, a song called Keep On Talking. We went out to Alabama to Muscle Shoals to work with Spooner. Fantastic. Which was heaven Fantastic. it was absolute heaven it was funny because we said to spooner because we were doing this piano record that will come out later next year or something like that and and we said to spooner we'll do it we want to do a version of keep on talking and he said i've not heard that record since i made it 
And we were like, what? And yes, I've not, I've not heard it. I've not played it. I've not heard it. He says, let me learn that again. <laughs> he did that thing where he suddenly remembered his record was really, he was like, oh yeah, that was a really good record we made. And we're like, yep. So yeah. that was a lot of fun. So I think it was really good to go with something that was a real classic sort of Texas track. And we shot the video. I played drums in the video. Nice. I have to say, you know, <laughs> you know what it's like when you, you mess about on the drums a wee bit. You like, you can play like three bars of a song or something. You go, what's this? I'm pretty good on the high. I never. Yeah, I never. Exactly. <laughs> that's me. I'd kind of like do a cowbell or something. And then a boom, 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 boom. <laughs> yeah, that's as far as I go. And then I'd stop. You know, I'd be like, okay, what songs? You know, stupid stuff like things like that. But I'd never played the drums right through. And Johnny says, why don't you play the drums in the video? And I was like, oh, shut up, you fool. <laughs> and he was like, you should. So then Kat, our drummer, I literally did about four or five days drumming. And <laughs> But then she said to me, she says to me, I'm going to write it out for you. And I was like, what do you mean? You write out the drums? She went, I'm going to write the drums out for you. And I was like, and she's suddenly writing like music. And I'm like, Kat, I don't read. I'm like, what? And she's like, right. This will make it simpler for you to learn. Because I was like, I thought you just learned to play the drum just because like, you thought that feels right in that place. Yeah. And she went, no, I write it out. And I was like, okay. So then I learned to play the drums and I got so into it. Wow. I literally got really into it. But today's the first week that I've actually able to move because after making the video, I was so sore because <laughs> I drummed and drummed and drummed. And I was like, oh. It was really good fun. It's so addictive. Do you think you're going to sort of like, you know, start writing the next Texas album, Drums First? I think we're going to have to get... <laughs> Sometimes we've done Drums First because yeah. I have such a But with you playing love, it, though. Oh, I know, that would be a bit of leave on helm. <laughs> yeah. I've got such a love-hate relationship with drummers. It's the thing that's so important to me and it's the thing I hate the most. I yeah. hate bad drums. Yeah. I get really upset about it. I'm like, what are you playing? Like, we just, why don't you just, like, smash all over my vocals? Or I remember somebody was playing percussion on something once on a Texas record, and yeah. and they were, like, they were, like, doing a shaker or something like this. And I remember sitting in the studio, and I was getting more scowly and more scowly by the minute. And they came in, they're like, what do you think? And I was like, do you play with your <laughs> like that? Seriously? <laughs> that is the most unsexy, impersonal shaker I've ever heard in my life. I was like... Can, yeah. literally you were like all over the track I was like you know yeah. it's like I'm very particular about drums yeah don't f*** on my track yeah I had a beautiful experience uh, where Jim Keltner um, brought his Ooh, uh, brought I his, played with Jim Keltner yeah, as well yeah yeah it's so cool he, well, he, um, he, did he have his fag hanging out his mouth he did he was wearing he shades and um, we were recording on the third floor um, of a house in Los Angeles and he carried his carried his own kit up. Oh, it was amazing. And he does not need to carry his own kit. No way. He, no, should, have, like, he should have Kellner an army of roadies, you know? Exactly. I mean, literally, <laughs> when we start, like, rhyming off the records that Jim Kellner has played on, you're literally going, like, sorry, like, let me carry your drums, Yeah, exactly. Mate. I did help him a little bit, you know? I did a thing with Ronnie Wood, and Jim was playing drums, and yeah. he had a sugu hanging on the side of his mouth. <laughs> I couldn't even think because I was that busy watching him. The ash was just, like bending over the cigarette and he managed to keep it on the whole time that's how steady he is now that's sexy drumming <laughs> yes Charlene so amazing to talk to you thank you
thank you for having me. It's been really good fun. Let's finish by hearing that new Texas song, after all. I tell stories to outdo you, but we're still laughing. I guess now we're satisfied. Let me try. from texas that was after all concluding this listening party on absolute radio thank you to charlene spateri for taking me through white on blonde every listening party i like to recommend a few records that i've been listening to this past week seeing as we mentioned this legendary artist earlier in the show with charlene i want to recommend susie and the banshees i always listen to susie and the album that i've been listening to this week is juju I would like to say that I've been listening to Seb Lowe, who's a brilliant young lad from Manchester, and he played at Tim Peaks, the festival within a festival that I do at Kendall Calling. So I'd like to recommend that you give him a listen. Let's go with Kate Bush, because I've been listening to Ariel a lot this week. I mean, I couldn't recommend any Kate album. The Dreaming is a big one, but um, Ariel's the one that I've been listening to this week, so uh, let's go with that one. And another new band, Fruit Tones, pretty sure they're from Manchester but they look and sound like they're from Detroit and they look like they exist in 1972 and that's a good enough reason for me so check them out we may be at the end of the show but keep tweeting me your thoughts using the hashtag Tim's Twitter listening party I'm Tim Burgess and thanks for listening every song on this episode of my listening party was taken from Texas's White on Blonde all tracks are written by Texas unless otherwise stated the album was released on Mercury in February 1997 see you next time Absolute Radio Telling the story behind another iconic album with Tim Burgess. Get involved using the hashtag Tim's Twitter Listening Party.